Hi and welcome to this week's edition of The Courageous Mama. We're into the 40s now, episode 41. And I want to thank you for listening and for your feedback. I love hearing from you, your questions, your encouragements. And thank you also for asking about the fostering. So here's a little update on that. We got up to the wire on two occasions, literally within an hour of the child arriving on one of them. But for various reasons, it didn't go ahead. We have a little one due this week, but as with all these situations, they have their complexities. So I'll keep you posted. This week, we've got a real treat. I don't know about you, but I'm often struck by the explosion of anxiety and depression among young people. You'll know through your friends, through their children and through the news that it's a growing issue. I have a friend called George. You might have met her on Podcast 34, which is the one that we did on drugs with Tony France. When we were covering that, we touched on anxiety and we just knew we needed to come back and tackle that as a separate subject. George is really open about the fact that she's struggled with anxiety and depression herself, so I felt she was a great person to ask those questions of Tony that are really close to her heart. Tony is a psychotherapist with bags of experience of supporting people with addiction, substance abuse and with trauma. His experience spans decades and continents and as director of Trauma Action Group, he specialises in trauma. Yep, he's the guy who was due to go off to Sudan and work with child soldiers. So you're going to love what he brings to us as parents in the area of anxiety. He's so encouraging, you really come away feeling, yep, there's lots I can do. I kicked off by asking him a slightly daft question about the rise in mental health. Um, I'd really like to say, I mean, I think to start with, if there was a rise in mental health, that would be a really good thing. Because, <laughs> Sorry, I put it right. Okay, well, it's just poor a, mental it, health. But exactly, because I think, you know, we, we, we use the term mental health and we immediately think mental illness, we, when actually mental health is something not only that we all have, but we all really need good mental health. Do I see poor, increasing amounts of poor mental health? It's really difficult for me to say in some ways because they are the people that I work with. If, if you have really good mental health, you probably won't end up seeing me or one of my therapists or, or, or any of us here. But I would certainly say that there is uh, an increase in referrals of children who are much younger than I'd seen before. I think the kind of uh, anxiety, stress, self-harm has increased. I think we talked last time about how drug use has decreased but on the other side of that, what we've seen is an increase in mental health problems presenting in other ways like self-poisonous, self-injurious behaviour, acute anxiety, chronic anxiety, um, depression, all of those things that we would, we would commonly associate uh, with poor mental health and often get written off as behavioural. So they mm. get referred for and they say, oh no, they haven't got a mental health problem, it, it's behavioural. And I think that's always going to be an issue is that we still struggle to define what is mental health for, you know, what is organic, if you like, in mental health terms, what is social and what is behavioural. And, and quite often those that we worry about most fall through the cracks in between those, those different 
states, diagnoses and approaches. So can you define those for us? No. No? (laughs) Well, I wanted to ask, um, you know, I think it's amazing that mental health now is so talked about, but I I almost worry that it's talked about so much and it's on so many soap operas that teenagers particularly might be watching um, and they then label themselves as having a mental health problem when actually it's not. Um, Do you come across that? Yes, I think so. I guess that's always going to be an issue, isn't it? Um, I think that during adolescence especially, we have turbulent emotions. Added to that, you have all the hormones. Added to that, you have the kind of neural reappraisal. So the, the, the development of, of self away from family, that, that real kind of emotional and moral development. And what, what's commonly called angst. And I guess if you looked in DSM-5, the, the diagnostic manual, you could probably reasonably easy diagnose just about any adolescent out there that is presenting with difficulties. The other side of that that we have to be really careful of is that we don't accept that life is really challenging at times in our lives. Mm. Um, and I think the risk is that we miss those who are really experiencing difficulties and challenges and we don't have a way to approach them and accept them for, for what they are. Do you see it more in working class families or middle class families? Does it sit in a certain place or are you seeing a whole spectrum from all kinds of backgrounds? Absolutely, full spectrum. Okay. Full spectrum, although probably what we know is, so if I just kind of, pull a few of those things out so some of this will be about um, genetic propensity some people are more sensitive than others you know Mm. some people are incredibly sensitive some people aren't there's a lot written now around the sensitive person the sensitive child I mean there's there's an enormous amount of research out there now for that but also temperament and, and, yeah. and I think some of the some of the early ideas around temperament led us to think and talk about sensitivity. Yeah. What we know about childhood adversity is that where there are higher levels of social difficulty, where there are higher levels of um, poverty, where there are higher levels of community violence, where there are high you know all of those kind of conditions that we see in poorer communities, there are higher clusters of childhood adversity. Childhood adversity can lead to a greater chance of mental health difficulties significantly in later life, although they don't necessarily present at childhood. Um, they kind of, they're almost in a survival state that mm-hmm. they get through t- childhood, uh, but they are more likely to be excluded from school, they're more likely to have behavioural difficulties, they're more likely to, there's a number of things they're more likely to engage in. However, I see it just as much in other families or from a, a raft of social backgrounds. Um, you know, eating disorders, I see that everywhere um, in, in, in lots of ways. But difficulties with relationship with food, I think when we, when we talk about eating disorder, we talk about anorexia or bulimia and that's it. And yet, actually, difficult relationships with food are something that I see in lots of children with early adverse experiences or early trauma. 
um, it can be a sensory issue. It can be in utero. Uh, so, so maybe mum had a really, really poor experience in, in pregnancy, was in a, an abusive relationship, um, or was drinking, or, or perhaps didn't carry pregnancy as we would hope she would. And that in itself can lead to, to difficulties. I think that the one thing that is common with all of those things, no matter where you come from, is relationship. And actually it's the parenting relationship. Parenting relationship is what makes the difference. And we've gone through a real time of change in parenting. If we look back to when I was parented and, and probably when you were parented, I mean, I'm that much younger, clearly. Mm. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, it was a very, what we would call old authority in parenting. Mm. So parenting was done from a distance. Um, you know, wait till your father gets home. And so it was done from a distance. It was done with the threat of punishment in order to ensure compliance. Um, teaching and schools were, were very similar to that. So, so the whole kind of caring and parenting of children was based in, in this old authority of parenting from a distance. Then we had this laissez-faire parenting that happened from the from the 90s, 90s onwards. So Steinberg talked about this laissez-faire parenting where we knew we needed to be different and it wasn't okay to smack children and it wasn't okay to use threat of punishment. But we had no parenting model for how we were going to parent through those times. Um, so we had this unbounded parenting you know, the children were free spirits and, and just let them find their own way in life. Of course, the reality was during that period and those generations, we saw the highest levels of teenage pregnancy we'd ever seen before. We saw the highest levels of antisocial behaviour, the highest levels of problematic drinking, of drug use, of all of those things because of the lack of relationship that actually your parent became your best friend. Mm. Actually, you don't, nobody needs their parent to be their best friend. They need them to be their parent. Mm. That's um, something that you mentioned last time, yeah. I would agree with. Yeah. I think there's a lot of that kind of, that need for approval of your child's approval. So even if they wouldn't necessarily label it best friend, it's, well, I don't want to do that because they'll be furious with me. Yeah. And... Can you cope with that? Are you big enough for well, that? Well, it's lack of presence, isn't it? So, so the new authority, Omar talks a lot about finding the new authority in parenting. And the new authority is presence. And presence isn't just being here with you now. Presence is knowing that you're in their mind when they're away from you and, and them knowing that, that they are in your mind when you're away from them. Um, but how does that speak into the parenting style? Are you saying that's a good thing or a oh, bad? Oh, absolutely. Thing? The new authority. We need to. It's about being boundaryed. It's mm. around being purposeful. It's around having a clear role and transaction in being parent child, mm. and and yeah, really finding that. And I think hopefully as we go through more of that, we'll see more boundaryed parenting, more um, helpful and safe parenting. This is about creating safety for children. Children become anxious when they are not safe. It's quite straightforward. And it can be, that can be either internal or external. Um, and maybe we'll come to that, but from the external, it can be about changes. You know, um, it might be about bereavement. It might be about changes in relationships. It might be about something happening. Um, or internally, but it might be motivated by internal compulsion when we think about OCDs and, and internally initiated 
anxiety problems. How young is the youngest that you've dealt with with depression and anxiety? With anxiety? Yeah. Um, yeah pretty much from birth. You, you know, okay. Children would experience anxiety um, if they have some level of disruptive uh, uh, disrupted attachment in, yeah. with their primary carer, then anxiety can happen at the earliest of ages. And I would see um, anxiety in very young children. What would you say are the, the main signs to look out for? And how would that display itself? Well, it would display itself in a number of ways. So it would, de- it would either display itself as not being able to seek support when they need it, with them being very fractious, with them not wanting to try new things, with them, you know, there could be any number of things, or a very fractious baby that doesn't settle easily, um, or they can be exceptionally clingy. Um, so we, we'd often, in, in primary age, we would talk about separation anxiety, and we all know what that's like. When we take our first child to school, I don't know who's more anxious. <laughs> yeah, I think all dads should take them, really, because we just let them go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you see, Chuck you see, a moving car, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> to use the stereotype, of course, but 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 you know, you you, you see mums on first day of school, and I you know I, I don't know whether the children cry more or the or, or the parents cry I more. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. So so you know, separation anxiety that we would see, and we'd see that in quite extreme levels where anxiety was a problem. We have to be able to differentiate between stress worry and anxiety and they're three very different states all of which can be motivating they're not all always negative that's interesting Um, that you know if it wasn't for stress i don't think i'd bother getting up in the morning if i'm honest that stress will drive me um in ways and and actually stress makes us hold ourselves upright to get things done you know stress can be toxic stress so when stress becomes too much and it's beyond our control and we're not prepared or we feel overwhelmed becomes really toxic in the system but there is nothing wrong with stress Mm. and there's nothing wrong with a healthy degree of worry Mm. or even a healthy degree of anxiety because it's about seeing risk that's what anxiety is about seeing risk in your environment and being able or having the capacity to respond to that it's when when that worry stress or anxiety reaches a point where it becomes unhealthy then becomes internalized or generalized i would see it most often in adolescence i'm just going to interrupt our conversation with tony briefly When our children aren't feeling emotionally safe, when they're struggling with a specific or with general worries, there is so much that we can do as parents and in the home and in our relationship with them to help them to feel safe. If you'd like some more detail on how to really dig into that, how to put those things in place, you'll love the book Parenting for Life. It's a beautiful, full-colour, coffee-table parenting book full of all the gritty life skills that we need to build our children's resilience and good mental health. And if you pop across and get it directly from the blog, you'll get the discount too. The link's in the show notes. Now, back to George and my chat with Tony. When I think about work I might do with parents and young people where we as parents don't see the importance of something that's happened a friendship has broken down, somebody said mm. something mean about them, you know, and we kind of think, oh, well, it'll be fine. You know, it's the more fish in the sea type mm. of... We were talking about this on the way, actually, weren't we? We were, yeah. Be. But how do you define that? 
how do you show your child empathy without then having the cosseted the cosseted feeling of wrapping in cotton wool and oh you know darling I understand this must hurt terribly and you know I, I can relate to that really important words but also saying in the same breath it'll be okay and you'll move on from this and okay. it will stop so, hurting so that bit yeah. is not empathy yeah, yeah. It's a difficult <laughs> balance, is, though, isn't it? Empathy is the first. Bit. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. But it's a um, difficult balance to you don't want to over overcompensate. Empathy is about connection. Yeah. And it's about connection at an emotional level. Mm. So for me, there will be three parts to empathy. One is, if you like, cognitive empathy, and which is the ability to recognise emotion in somebody else. The second part is emotional empathy being able to feel the pain of another. And the third part is the compassionate empathy, which I think is what you were talking about. Yeah. Is the compassionate empathy is, is, is the drive to want to make it feel different yes. for somebody. Not perhaps problem solving. I think what we do as parents, we, we fall into problem solving. But actually compassionate empathy is, is the ability to say, wow, that really hurts. You know, I can feel how difficult yeah. this is. And perhaps the compassionate empathy is is that I wonder if there's anything I could do to help, but not to come up with what might help. <laughs> it's it's it, it, to introduce their their reflection. Um, into... So at that point, would you say to a child, "What would you like me to do?" No, or what say, can I, I just, do to help? I wonder. Yeah, I wonder if there's anything I can do to help because there might not be anything. Exactly, but the child then also feels a little bit of control, I suppose, as well, by saying whether they want you in, or they don't, or they can handle it themselves, or maybe you ask them what they think they should do, and that's maybe when you can... I think it's nice to empower them, Yeah, and if they can't come up with a single thing, you can then say, do you want me to come up with some ideas? And they can still choose. Mm. Or Mm. just say, should we just hang out? You know, and just sit with someone. It, it's, it, you know, it is, there's a fine line between empathy and sympathy. And empathy drives connection and relationship is everything in safety. And sympathy drives disconnection. Mm. It's, it, 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 it's powerless. I'm sorry for you. Mm. Yeah. It's pity. It, it, yeah, absolutely. It's pity, it's patronising and it's mm. powerless. So, but, but there's a fine line. There are two sides of the same coin. Um, and there's a fine line between the two. When my heart goes out to somebody rather than sharing the pain with them, it's very different. Um, and as a parent, wanting to make it better. Yeah, just wanting to make it better. Um, and wanting to stop it hurting. And you can't. And you way. can't. Yeah. And nor should we. Quite. Um, exactly. you, know, you can fake it, can't you? You can yeah. go, you'll be okay, mm. just do this. I hate yeah. doing and then they that. Quiet, the and you think it's yeah. all good, yeah. And it's not all good, right. but they, what they've done is thought, I better put that away because she's not coping with that. Or, yeah. or she's not, and there is something about not wanting to upset your parents, not wanting to let them know mm. what's going on for you um, because you feel like you're letting them down. Mm. Because I should be able to cope, especially with boys. Um, you know, boys should be able to, to cope. Um, and it's a societal kind of pressure 
you know, big boys don't cry, all that, that rubbish, then platitudes that we come out with. And it's really difficult. It's really difficult to tell your parents that stuff. Mm. Do you see more of that in boys than you do girls? That this kind of tough exterior that they've got to have? Because I thought that was something that had been broken down quite a lot over the last couple of years. I'd never say to my boys, oh, don't cry. I probably have said it, but I try <laughs> not to say it. Or man know. up. Man up. That just, yeah, we but don't say don't want, I think I just think it's a huge debate. I definitely think it's better than it, it, it was. But really interestingly, if you guys were down the pub and you were together, you'd be happily talking about parenting. Dance? Not so much. <laughs> um, that, that perhaps we'd have those conversations in different arenas. And boys, pretty much the same. And I, I think we mustn't lose the gender difference. We mustn't try and make little boys into what little girls are. Um, really agree with that, that. That actually we mustn't, you know, there is a, a neurological scientific difference between genders and gender needs. So, so boys largely, as a generalisation, boys have a much greater need for a sense of status. And what I mean by status is to be valued for, for what they bring, to be valued as a person and for what they offer. Girls have a much greater need for emotional connection to others. Um, and you can track that back to kind of, you know, um, the female brain largely evolved to nest, defend and to nurture. And, and so you can track back that need for emotional connection um, in, in kind of in the sapient history, really, in terms of what it's about. And we shouldn't lose that. So boys, again, generally do better in competition. Girls generally do better in cooperation. So we need to think about how we meet the needs of our children, how we meet the, the gender needs. They have common needs, but also the gender needs of children is, is important to me, really. So what would you say are the first signs or, or signs parents should look out for if they think their children might be suffering or, or might not be suffering, they're just missing signs? What tends to be the general pattern if I had a pain for every time somebody asked me for a list of what should I look for, if they're being, being bullied, if they're using drugs, if they're, you know, having teenage sex, if they're, you know, just I'd be a rich man. The reality is that you as mum know, and you will know when their behaviour changes in ways that is both unexpected and uncharacteristic. What you then need to rely on is... The strength of your relationship to say, wow, life feels really tough right now and I, I don't know if I know what's going on. Is there any way I can help? So it would be uncharacteristic changes and it could be in anything from school, so suddenly not wanting to go to school, suddenly not talking about school, suddenly not want that. No, these could also be signs of teenage in terms of the separation from parents. So, so all of these things will be different at different stages of their development. There was one you mentioned earlier, not wanting to try things was not wanting that you to mentioned. try new things. Yeah, yeah, yeah will be a key sign for anxiety uh, setting in. Now, whether that anxiety is related to their attachment, whether it's related to um, 
sensory, whether, you know, whatever, but it would, and any of those things could underpin the development of anxiety difficulties, and I won't call it disorders, because largely we don't see a lot of disordered anxiety in children, but we will see generalised anxiety, and we will see anxiety, diff so not wanting to try new things, perhaps real changes, sudden changes in peer networks and friendships, changes in eating habits, you know, th those changes that are just really uncharacteristic of your children and you think something's going on and I, I don't know what it is. And what do you do from that point then, Tony, when you think something's not right and I, I can't get to what it is? What professional outlets are there that, that are bringing everyone to you, Tony? <laughs> don't do but, that. <laughs> but what, what is out there for parents? Um, there's lots of self-help stuff around anxiety, which is really, really helpful. You know, anxiety is a well-known condition, uh, for want of another word. I think that there are times in every one of our lives where we experience anxiety. Um, now, whether that's for, for some older children thinking about anxiety and worry around examinations or coursework, these kind of things whether it's about going to a new school, you know, anxiety tends to be around key transitions. So there'll be key transitions that they're making in life and that's where anxiety is likely to kick in or something external will have happened. So there will be some kind of stress reaction to something that's happened. So uh, I worked with a young boy many years ago now in a primary school who had lost his ability to, to self-regulate. So he would blow up, he was getting in kids' faces, he couldn't learn, he was distracted, he would be typically hyperactive, but what I would call hypervigilant rather than hyperactive, so inability to settle or attend to task or do any of those things. And so I did a, a little piece of work with him. And um, so it turned out that his, um, his dog had gone missing. And mum just kind of said, well, you know, it's probably been run over. And that was it. They didn't talk about the dog anymore. And in his mind, he imagined all kinds of things. And we did a little bit of work together where I asked him how much of his brain was able to be here in school. And he, he, he identified a piece about the size of a one pence piece, you know. And I said, so what, what's the rest of your brain thinking about? And he said, my dog. And he had no, no ability to talk to anybody about it because it was kind of dismissed. The dog's gone. It's, it's just the way it is. And, and so we worked around that for him to gain his presence again and to attend. And we ended up having, you know, conversations with the family about, you know, you need to have these conversations. You can't just brush it under the carpet exactly. it's really important exactly yeah and so it is and, and children won't always know what it is that's bothering them yeah i think as parents we want to know so what's the problem and it's like well I, you know mm. they mm. see the world differently to us and and we need to allow them to describe their world to us in a way that we can understand um and that's where we make the connection that means that um we can begin to help them and, and we all know what that feels like yeah and an empathy is the ability to connect with something inside ourselves that recognizes that really dark place where we feel overwhelmed 
we don't have to have experienced the same event. The event is relatively irrelevant. It's that feeling of being in a really dark place and feeling overwhelmed and knowing that somebody can sit in that space with you and not try and put a silver lining around it or make it okay, but sit there with you mm -hmm. and share that space. That's empathy. You know, can we make somebody feel better? Oh, yeah, maybe. Um, mm. Or does somebody feel better because they've shared their feeling? Now, that's something different. It's a fine point, really. But it's the difference between somebody feeling safe enough to share things that are really painful with us in a way that makes them feel less alone, less overwhelmed. I wouldn't have said we can make someone feel better. Mm. But I, I think going in with that objective is quite heavy, isn't it? Oh, God, yeah, absolutely. It's just, as you say, about making it okay that you feel like that. Not yes, accepting, and that's about accepting. Yeah, yeah. You know, accepting that these these things exist and that they're painful. So going back to something that George said earlier about what can we do? Start with what do you do with the early signs? Early signs is is about making sure that they know that we think about them. So keep you know holding them in mind and letting them know. So for really little children, it might be about using what we call invisible string. So as they know that when they go off to school, there's a piece of invisible string that connects them to you. And if they're worried at any point during the day, they can tug on that string and they know that oh, you're like going to feel it. Yeah, <laughs> and that, that kind of invisible string idea. We might use transitional objects, something of me or mine or something of yours, that they transition into different environments. Um, we might use... Um, I mean, the, the key things will be structure routine expectation and preparation so um you know the structure and routine so they know what's going to happen when and with whom um nothing um unexpected has happened um or wherever we can i mean some of life will always be unexpected but those parts of life that we are able to create expectation that's what we do um, and that they are prepared and, and pre it can be prepared for the unexpected you know what's going to happen if so rehearsal is really important for them beginning to understand helping them understand what's within their control and what's not yeah what are the things that we can control and we have influence over and what are the things that that, that we don't because if we worry about those that's not going to work out too well for us um, and I think again back to parenting a lot of that parenting is about that's that's the decisions that I make to keep you safe. They're not your decisions, and and so sometimes taking the weight of, of some of that away from them is is really important. They need to grow into a sense of autonomy and personal agency, and not have too much where it overwhelms them. And do you think that's all part of? teaching them how to deal with their anxiety as well because there's yeah. a certain element I know with my anxiety that I can get to a point where I can actually handle it is that all about um, seeing that you've got an anxious child and helping them in the rehabilitation process of them then learning how to cope with it because oh, that anxiety yeah. I would say a hundred percent will stay with them in whatever capacity for the rest of their life it's about learning to manage it and deal with it and, and recognize it 
it's very difficult when you're having a, a moment of an anxiety attack to know Ooh. that you're having an anxiety attack. <laughs> yeah, you don't have a voice saying, this is your anxiety, calm down. Well, you might. Now, I will. That This is my anxiety, but it's normally after it's happened. And I think, oh, I was being completely irrational and that was an anxiety, overwhelming feeling. But is there something we can do as parents or, or is it all the process you've just talked us through how they can learn to cope with that going into adulthood, how to cope with their anxiety, recognise it? Yes, I, th- I think we can also reduce, we, we can significantly reduce anxiety. That's through really skills. interesting point. Yeah, you yeah. Know, through, through skills. Through, learning, yeah. through skills, learning to manage anxiety. Yeah. We can, it, it also depends where the anxiety is rooted so we can resolve anxiety i mean so as it doesn't exist throughout your adult life it is it is possible to resolve anxiety depending on where that that anxiety is 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 rooted you know if it's rooted in our attachment style then that's going to be more difficult and likely to you know what we would find is that perhaps we develop some intimate relationships where it doesn't exist so we know that in this relationship i don't experience anxiety but i do in that relationship yeah. Yeah, and so we, we begin to see the pattern of our anxiety in in the relationships that we have. I suppose one of my common examples would be that somebody comes out of Morrison's and they get mugged, their bag gets stolen, and it's never really resolved. The, the, the bag in the wallet is found empty, but it's never really resolved. And, and every time they go to go back to Morrison's, they feel quite anxious about it, and actually... It gives them the excuse to go to Waitrose anyway. So, <laughs> yeah. so off they go to Waitrose. And actually, but it's not long after that when they discover that, well, if I, if I do online shopping, I don't have to go out and get the shopping at all because I, I'm, I don't enjoy the shopping process as I used to. Um, and then, you know, maybe six months down the line where this anxiety is, is no longer, is become what we call generalised, and I come and I say, hey, Max, look, it's, um, it's Hannah's Hendu. We're all going out for a drink. Do you want to come? And Max turns around to me and says, no, 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 um, I don't like crowds. Mm. So all of a sudden, what, what was an incident and a root of an incident has become a generalised anxiety about being in groups of people where people are unpredictable. Yeah. So, so there is a process where we internalise anxiety. And I think sometimes what you're talking about is this generalised anxiety. Yes. And it's, it, we can't find the root of where it's come from. We've lost it in time Or you space. can make up a root. Or you can make you know, Absolutely you can. <laughs> we're yes. talking about yes. somebody being mugged at Morrison's. <coughs> I could quite easily go, imagine if you were mugged here. And then that builds up something <laughs> massive in my head. Exactly. You yeah. know, it doesn't, something physically doesn't have to have happened no. to make that You can happen. imagine. Yeah. Yes. yeah. And that's what anxiety is. So, so sometimes, <laughs> you know, sometimes people live with generalised anxiety for, you know, throughout their lives. Other times, not so much. We're able to resolve it if people seek help or they seek support. Um, it is eminently treatable. Now, whether that's at a, you know, there will be there's pharmaceutical responses to anxiety. Yeah. You know, from what, what was her name, Marilyn Monroe. She loved yeah. the anatriptyline. Yeah. Um, so we can we can think about those those kind of pharmaceutical responses. We can think about cognitive responses, which is very much a skills based approach. The CBT as an approach, has really good outcomes for... That's definitely a longer-term remedy. I think going down the tablet route, I think that really helps us suppress 
immediate anxiety. That sort yeah. of <gasps> overwhelming, someone stood on my chest, that goes, it just numbs everything. And then I think the cognitive then really comes after that, I would say, or together. I mean, together, I think that's the best probably combination, would you say? But I think it gives it more longevity, I think the, it's the time, coping mechanisms. Well, I think it's the time at which you engage. Yeah. I mean, if it's, if it's become quite entrenched, yeah. then you're probably going to need a bit of both. Yeah. Um, if it's caught earlier, then probably just some CBT, as long as it's not too overwhelming or too intrusive. And if it's been long-standing and, and that stuff hasn't worked, then you probably need um, to do some more reflective psychotherapy or, or something around those. You know, I mean, there are a range of... And, and it is highly treatable. And, of course, we can also then become depressed. We can become depressed because we're just so fed up with being anxious. It's exhausting. Um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's, it's exhausting. Yeah. So then, so then what happens is we start having a background low mood state. But, and that often gets missed. The background low mood state gets missed because anxiety is like the child with challenging behaviour. Yeah. <laughs> because it's always it's in your face and it's 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 hyper and it's And they're you know, so opposing. Yes. They're such different, different things, anxiety and depression. And but but so opposing. So you've got your anxiety where you're <gasps> hyper and then you've got depression where you just think, what's the point? So what? So and then what? we get anxious because we're depressed. Exactly. It's a vicious circle. <laughs> yes, the two absolutely. just, yeah. you know, snowball into each other, but are so opposite ends of the spectrum as well in terms of how they feed into your brain and your body, your physical state. But yeah, are both absolutely. of them always present? Not always. Um, no, not always. But commonly, I would often... And I'd often see one that's missed, um, you know, that because uh, they've been treating the one that presents as the the primary concern. And, and you're right about the, the whole kind of biology because anxiety leads to draining the adrenal glands, you know, and, and so you get like a physical depression as well as... Yeah. Um, my, de- my depression, I can, I can say, hand on heart, has gone. Yeah. I know it's always going to be something that is there, but the depression I experienced, which was a very black depression, um, that has gone. My anxiety is can be absolutely through the roof, and they're two very, very different yes. feelings. Yeah. I don't have that feeling anymore. If we went out, of like, why is she even bothered putting makeup on? What's the point? Why? Why is he dressed night? What's the point? Who cares? That's gone. Yeah. But the anxiety is still very high. Now, mine can also be linked. Um, it, it can be a cyclical anxiety, so it can be related to uh, my hormones um, and my monthly cycle, mm-hmm. and every is a definite peak. Um, which has been, you know, I've had medical help with. Um, so it's it's really interesting. But but in in children, can it be hormone led as oh, well? Definitely. You know, with boys yeah, with certainly. high testosterone, or, or can that yeah, really yeah. impact it? Yeah, hormone. You know, the interaction between mm-hmm. our, our brain and body um, in terms of neurotransmitters, right the way through to hormones, absolutely. And you can hit a perfect storm where where all those things seem to come together. I don't think there's anybody who is who is reasonably self-aware who doesn't recognise a time in their life where they have been vulnerable, depressed, anxious, any of those things, um, because it exists for all of us. I think I'm really interested actually in your idea that you, you're able to say my depression is gone, but you only talk about anxiety in lifelong management. Terms. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I, I think it's just. I, I think it's more. That feeling of um, it was like living in the worst, most 
most awful fog of the most awful mood that I couldn't lift myself out of. Mm. I couldn't think forward. I couldn't think anything. I had no feeling to anything. No, nothing excited me. It's the and that is the best description of Mm -hmm. it. And when you say to people I felt numb, people might say, "Well, I feel about things." This is a constant state, and it's horrendous. Whereas I don't have that anymore, and I think I would recognise, or I like to think I would see the red flags if that was coming back. I mean, sometimes I can dip in and think, oh, and scare myself a bit, but then it lifts and it goes. Whereas this was a long, this happened, you know, mostly after the birth of, of my second son and manifested massively over a period of five years to the point where I did have to turn for help. Mm. And luckily, it worked. Um, but interestingly, you're saying that this is a lifelong issue that you're mm. just going to have to be aware manage. of, I, I think. Whereas, am I hearing you say you don't buy into that? No. <laughs> and that's great for me to hear yeah, because actually that's what I want to hear. I think, I, I think I, that's yeah. amazing. And I that's think lifting uh, me. Yeah. And, and absolutely. When I say something eminently treatable, I, it's like other things. Yeah, absolutely. So it doesn't mean you're. And I suppose I've, I've, we get a lot of platitude around recovery for you know i mean recovery from depression what does that mean i don't ever hear somebody say oh, i'm recovered you know like yeah. it's gone um in the same and then you have all the 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 12 steppers around alcohol you know what's an alcoholic always an alcoholic you know alcoholics are in recovery for the rest of their life i think there's some social paradigms around this that is has become part of a social belief system um but no, absolutely. I believe we move on, and I, I believe that we. I think recover. that's fantastic. Yeah. I think that's I think that's so positive to hear that, and I think anyone listening to this podcast who have got children displaying it or they're going through it themselves to know that there is light at the end of oh, time, absolutely. and this isn't something necessarily yeah. that you have got to live with for the no. rest of your life or no. manage it. This is something that you can get over, and, and I think that's brilliant, and certainly in children that it won't affect their adulthood if you. It shouldn't. In, yeah. It shouldn't. You know, I mean, some. What we do know. I mean, when we and when we think about, and I suppose this is really important to say, is that over seventy percent of what we might call organic mental health difficulties. So those, you know, from schizophrenia to to all of those, you know, bipolar disorder or or those really quite serious organic difficulties. Over seventy percent of them appear in those teenage years. You know, they happen. They, they, their, their onset is between the age of fifteen, sixteen, and twenty-five, and and that's when the majority of them appear. The vast majority of people's mental health difficulties are not organic. They're non-organic. They, they are anxiety, depression. You know, these kind of things. They're not things that are going to require lifelong management, like schizophrenia might. Or, or one of the other um, more serious mental health, longer term mental health difficulties, we are able to recover, and I would use the term to recover. I mean, some of the OCDs certainly can be lifelong for people. Not always, but some can. Going back to my earlier question, where if you've got someone at the beginning of sort of anxiety and yeah. stress and so on, you go to a great list of things that you can do to help that. We're now on to sort of talking about kind of quite the serious end there. Yeah. So if you've got a child and they are really uptight and not managing and not trying new things and lipping into depression, 
there's such a list before you get to see cams, isn't there? It's quite hard. Oh yeah, to absolutely. What can the parent then do at that end of the spectrum? Um, well, I think I suppose most schools would have some kind of school counsellor. I think the GP is a great place to start. Most of mental health cams have, you know, increasingly now the child and adolescent mental health services have mental health workers that are, you know, they're not CPNs, they're not psychiatric nurses, but they are mental health professionals that are connected to schools, to communities, and I think that there are places that you can go. And actually, the reality is that there's 168 hours in a week, and if they see a counsellor or they see a therapist like me, they'll be lucky if they see me an hour a week. The people who will make the real differences in children's lives will be you guys. And that will be was parents. probably the main part of my question is, I, I get, you know, of course you can go to the GP and you can go mm. to the school counsellor, but what in the home could they do? Do they keep them off school because they're anxious of school or do they encourage them back into the school, you know? Um, well, tolerance and resilience is everything, isn't it? That, that what we don't want to do, you talked about wrapping them in cotton wool, yeah. what we don't want to do is remove all risk from the environment yeah. because they won't learn to tolerate or, or become resilient to risk. Um, I think quite often the people that need to seek the help and support would be um, the parents rather than the child. Um, and I always feel far more effective when I'm working with parents than perhaps directly with a child. If it was a small child, then I'd probably create safe spaces and some kind of sensory circuit in their room that they can use to self-regulate and maybe a pop-up tent that they can have. And, you know, whereas if it was a teenager, I'd probably be doing more work around more physical engagement with perhaps more physical activity, uh, walking activity, this kind of thing, planning activities. So they're, they're again, expectation, preparation, planning, some secret words for you, to, to actually step up as parents so as they know actually if I say this mum I need you to step in mm. um, Johnny and I so, have one of those yeah, yeah. You know, yeah we those do we have sensors off we yeah. say okay. so Max will say to me can we have a sensors off conversation what and I'll mean? say okay tell me whatever he wants and it goes yeah. no further and okay so it senses off so yeah. it, it it doesn't matter it's in these four walls and it goes absolutely yeah. no uh, further okay i yeah. meant more that if he's in a situation and he mm. wants to say something but it's awkward so maybe someone's yeah. invited yeah. him out he doesn't want to go you know yeah he's not his head. Yeah. yeah he will get this word into the sentence oh. and then i know that and you'll step yeah. in and, and, and it can be depending on where they are experiencing their anxiety you might you know you might have words for any one of those things and that's much more a teenage thing that we might do for them so like I say it's it's difficult to give advice not knowing where that you know are they anxious in relationship mm-hmm. so you know your your kind of anxiously attached child who thinks that the world is unsafe or your avoidantly attached child that thinks that adults can't be trusted the narratives for anxiety would dictate what we might do and how we might go about it. Because what are we doing? We're creating safety. Mm. That's, you know, ultimately... If you, uh, I want to dig into both of those. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, and, and me safety, too. you know, And safety is an internal sense of safety. It's not the absence of risk. I think that's, you know, we get really caught up in safety being the absence of risk, and it's not. Mm-hmm. Safety is a feeling that we sense inside ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and where we feel safe, we don't experience anxiety. Mm-hmm. So, so that's what we're seeking to do. You know, you're, and 
maybe it's a simple question around, we talked about, this feels really hard. Mm. I wonder if there's anything I can do to help. You know, there's another question around that is, what might I do to help you feel safe? You know, yeah. ask. If we and don't know, have the courage, courage to ask. That's a sentence that we could all take into our families, couldn't we? Mm-hmm. My eldest boy had really bad anxiety through his teenage years, to a point where he couldn't sit his exams. We had a period where he couldn't attend school. He really struggled with anxiety for probably three or four years, quite acutely. Can you find the root of that? Yes. His mum experienced postnatal depression a bit like you did yeah. but hers was was bordering on what we call postpartum um, psychosis so she had a period of time where it had been about six or seven weeks and she could no longer be in the same room with him she, she just literally couldn't have anything to do with the baby mm-hmm. so I gave up work and I had him from that period but absolutely I can track back his anxiety that eventually came out in its acute form during teenage years but he had been anxiously attached so anxious in relationship from that point going forwards um he's now in china teaching you know doing fine (laughs) absolutely and i think that's really important and i've really sensed that today and that gives me a Less, makes me less anxious. <laughs> well, it's like, you know, life doesn't have to, to, to stay like this. Life can change. That's we so are, good. you know, we are incredible species. We are, we're adaptable. The, the, you know, and we do adapt, and we adapt in relationship really well. Mm. And when we do, then our anxiety goes down. I, you know, haven't experienced having a child with anxiety, but I do know a lot of people that have, and I just know that so much of what you've covered is going to be really oh. instrumental. Thanks so much, Tony. No a- problem. A- amazing, amazing, <laughs> amazing as always. <laughs> when can I book next in? <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you. Oh. Thank you both. That was a great conversation. What lit up for you? I'm so grateful just for the way he harnesses some of those major issues. How our parenting is affected by the way we've been parented. Our children's internal as well as external safety. Structure, routine, expectation and preservation. I wrote that down. And I'm so grateful to George. She's leveraging her horrible experience of anxiety and depression to benefit others. That's such a positive outcome from a difficult time in her life. Her personal insights shape her questions and I enjoyed sitting back and listening. One of my key reminders was just how much there is that we as parents can do. Parental relationship makes all the difference. If you'd like to know what a session entails with me on building your child's self-esteem or tackling an area that's proving difficult in your family life, do pop across to the website where there are some details and that's in the show notes along with Tony's contact details and the link for the book. My Instagram, my blog, my podcast, they're all under The Courageous Mama so I'm very easy to find and my email is to thecourageousmama at gmail.com. So thanks for joining us on this week's show. I look forward to seeing you next week.